The title of this talk is Clouds of Blossoms. The phrase comes from a haiku by the great master of the form, Matsuo Basho, who lived in Japan from 1644 to 1694. The poem goes, Clouds of Blossoms, that temple bell, is it Ueno? Asakusa? And the translation is by Robert Haas and all of the haikus that I'm going to read tonight, the translation is by Robert Haas. Um, so haiku, particularly Basho's haiku, capture fleeting moments that arise and then pass away in this world of dew. Here the poet presents us with the cherry blossoms, the sound of the bell, and then his question to himself. That's all. Traditional Japanese haiku are usually linked to a season by kigo, or seasonal phrases. The inclusion of certain kigo determines the season of the haiku. So the moon suggests autumn, broiled parsley suggests winter, mosquitoes suggest summer, serenity suggests spring. And manuals have been published in Japan that list almost 5,000 different kigo, and they all carry their own powerful connotations. When the 20th century haiku poet Kuroda Mamakon was asked about Kigo, she said, These words do not belong to the author of the poem. They belong to us, the Japanese people. Seasonal words are our national treasures. They are like jewels, polished and made more precious by time. When we pick up one of these jewels and use it in a haiku, it is rich with history. They capture the essence of Japanese life. So haiku are about the seasons, which means that they're about nature and they're about change. In Basho's haiku, Clouds of Blossoms, that temple bell is a Duino Asakusa, the kigo is blossoms, which of course suggests spring. In April this year, I travelled to Japan visited Tokyo and Kyoto. It was springtime, and I too saw clouds of blossoms. The old grounds of one of the temples mentioned in that poem of Basho's have now been transformed into Ueno Park, one of Tokyo's largest public spaces. Over 1,000 cherry blossoms line the path of the park, sorry, cherry blossom trees line the paths of the park, and it is one of the most popular spots in the city for blossom viewing. During the two weeks of cherry blossom season, each evening thousands of people visit Ueno Park for Hanami, or blossom viewing picnics. The tradition of Hanami can be traced back to the 8th century, and is perhaps even older than that. In Ueno Park, I sat and ate under the blossom trees, alongside families, office workers and students. People laughed, sang, took photographs and shared food. Above them, pink and white petals came down from the trees, drifting slowly to the ground. Almost as soon as they appear, the blossoms begin to fall. According to Robert Haas, with the introduction of Buddhism into Japanese thought, the cherry blossoms, associated anciently with the orchard, the fertility cycle, and the priapic spring, became, in their beauty and briefness, poignant emblems, emblems of the transience of the world. Spring is a magical time in Japan 
and it's also a magical time here in Western Australia. On Sunday, I, with many of you, sat on Noongar country with Michael Wright in Kings Park. It was a beautiful day. Sometimes the breeze blew cool, sometimes the sun shone with a warmth that felt like a mother's love. The wattle was intensely yellow and tiny, tiny blue flowers grew wildly. As we sat around us, people laughed, sang, peeled off their jumpers and ran about. This year, I felt fortunate to learn a little from Michael about the six Noongar seasons. The start of October at the moment marks the end of Jilba, the season of conception, and the beginning of Cumberan, the season of birth. When I was writing this talk, I was wondering if it would be possible to develop um, a collection of southwestern Australian Kigo um, based on the six Noongar seasons. And you could use them to write haiku about this part of the world. And the, in Japan, the haiku anthologies are divided into seasons, so chapter for spring, chapter for summer. Imagine having a haiku anthology with divided into those six Noongar seasons. Uh, tonight, I would like to talk to you about Japan, about poetry, and about Zen. There is a great literary tradition in Zen. According to Robert Aitken, the way is grounded in genuine experience in poetry. Many of the most revered ancestors in our Zen tradition were also gifted poets, as is our own teacher, Ross Bolida. Poetry is a great inspiration for my Zen practice. I'm inspired by Chinese, Japanese and American Zen poetry, the haiku of Basho and others, and the gutters of Robert Aitken. I'm also inspired to practice by the work of poets completely outside of the Zen tradition. And one of those poets is William Wordsworth, who lived from 1770 to 1850. And I would like to read you one of his sonnets, which to me suggests the Buddha nature of all beings. It is a beauteous evening, calm and free. The holy time is quiet as a nun, breathless with adoration. The broad sun is sinking down in its tranquility. The gentleness of heaven broods over the sea. Listen, the mighty being is awake, and doth with his eternal motion make a sound like thunder everlastingly. Dear child, dear girl, that walkest with me here, if thou appear untouched by solemn thought, thy nature is not therefore less divine. Thou liest in Abraham's bosom all the year, and worshippest at the temples in a shrine, God being with thee when we know it not. Basho and Wordsworth are interesting poets to compare, because in some ways they could. They seem incredibly different from one another. Basho is best known for condensing moments of human experience into 17-syllable tight poems, while Wordsworth is best known for his 8,000-line epic, The Prelude, which outlines a complex philosophical system. And yet I think that we can see some similarities between these two poets. Both of them write primarily about nature, um, and they both see themselves as part of nature, and both also rejected in their work the heightened poetic diction that dominated poetry during their time. Um, and both of these poets, they chose to use 
everyday language, more down-to-earth language, the language of ordinary speech, as opposed to the poetic language that was all poetry was written in really during their time. Another poet that inspires my practice is the Australian poet Judith Wright, who lived from 1915 to 2000. Both the Zen student and the poet must observe closely, and Wright's poetry is powerfully attentive. And I'd like to read her poem, Lichen Moss Fungus. Autumn and early winter wet this clay soil with rains. Slow, primitive plant forms push up their curious flowers. Lichens, mosses and fungi. These flourish on this rock ridge. A delicate, crushable tundra. Bracket, star, cup, parasol, gild, pored, spored, membrane, white, chestnut, violet, red. I stoke the fire with wood laced with mycelia. Tread a crust of moss and lichen. Over the wet decay of log and fallen branch, there spreads an embroidery, ancient source of forests. In her later years, Wright was influenced by the Japanese haiku masters, including Basho. She described their work as enclosed by silence, as is the thrush's call. In the poem I've just read, I think that the influence is obvious uh, in the way the poem is linked to the seasons and in the directness of her observations. She combines these qualities with her own inclination to catalogue precisely uh, in botanical terms. I would like to now tell you about some of the places I visited in Japan and read a few poems I scribbled in my travel journal. In Tokyo, I sat Zazen in two Zen temples. The first was a small, kind of run-down Rinzai temple in the Shibuya area. Uh, The temple held Zazen every morning between 6 and 7 for lay people. The first time I tried to go there, I couldn't find, I couldn't find it. I had the street address and it was, yeah, I couldn't see the entrance of the temple. But the next morning I went back and there was a French expat there um, and he kind of showed me where to weave behind these buildings. And that, he sat there every day and there were 15 or so others there as well, mainly businessmen on their way to work. So sitting in their suits, sitting Zazen in their suits. Um, so we sat two rounds of Zazen very much like we did here tonight, although we did not sit on Zafus. Instead, we were given two small mats, much smaller than these, and one of, you folded one in half and you sat on that as your Zafu. Afterwards, I and a few others stayed for tea in the kitchen with the Roshi, who was very shy. Uh, he must have been a keen calligrapher because there were brushes laying all around the temple. The second temple that I sat at was a large opulent Soto temple in a business district of the city. Huge gold statues of the four heavenly kings stood at the entrance. At the temple, I met a monk who spoke very good English and he was very generous with his time. He took me into the temple and we had tea together. And he told me all about his training as a monk, which sounds like at times it was very difficult and rigorous. He asked me many, many questions about the way that we practice here. He was kind of asking me as many, I was asking him a lot of questions and he was asking me a lot of questions. And he seemed very intrigued by um, Western lay practice. And he was amazed. He, he said, so you, 
you have your job, you have your holidays, and in your holidays, you do session. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and we, uh, yeah, he, he spoke to me a lot also about the importance of posture. He said you have to sit upright without effort. And he said it took him 10 years of sitting as a monk before he could find comfort and ease. Remembering this conversation has given me solace a number of times as I've struggled with pain during Zazen. After we had our tea, he led me into the meditation hall of the monastery, which was incredibly grand. And in the hall, they had zafus. Uh, They were on tatami mats, which were on kind of raised platforms. And traditionally, the training monks who would have lived at the monastery, they would have sat zazen, ate, and also slept on one of those tatami mats. Each mat had a small drawer where a monk would stow all their belongings. There were many complicated rituals for entering the meditation hall and for raising yourself up to sit on the platform because they would also they would eat on the edge of the platform so you couldn't touch the edge of the platform with your feet um, because he said that the bowl would sit on the platform and the bowl symbolizes the Buddha's symbolize the Buddha's head so you couldn't put your feet where you put the Buddha's head um, so yeah it was a quite complicated getting up on that. Anyone who's been to Japan would know that because of the way that the currency works, you end up with a lot of coins in your pockets. So as I climbed up onto the platform, all this money started (laughs) spilling out of my trousers. And later when I got back, I wrote a haiku about it. Climbing on a Zafu, clinking coins fall from the layman's pockets. Um, And then, so then... I sat on the, on the Zafu and then uh, he rang the bells very much like Herman has tonight. And then he left, then he left me in there. And I was thinking, oh, I hope he, I hope he comes back. <laughs> I felt like a bit like a stove, a pot put on the stove. Like I was worried I was kind of going to be forgotten. But about 45 minutes he came back and he rang the bells again. So, um, and then after we'd sat, after I'd sat, as I was leaving the monastery, the monk said to me, he said, it is not enough to be taught, we must also teach others. Remember that? Well. Uh, that evening, I checked into a capsule hotel. So there were four or five floors of the hotel. On each of those floors, there were 150 capsules. So 150 men on the floor I was sleeping in slept in these small cubicles, one on top of another. Um... Each capsule had a little television, so you'd lie in there, you'd have a curtain, uh, and you'd have a little television, uh, which had uh, many channels of pornography to choose from. (laughs) (laughs) Through the night, it was just a chorus of snores in this this floor of this hotel. Many snoring men. Most of the men were businessmen who'd been out drinking and missed the last train home. In the lobby the next morning, they bought business shirts and toothbrushes. When I lay down in my capsule, my feet touched one end and my head touched the other. Uh, But as I was lying there, it struck me that the capsule was about the same size as the tatami mats of the temple. So that was where I would lay and that was where I would practice. While I was traveling, I was reading Basho's travel writing which is a combination of prose and haiku. 
As I sat on the bullet train or Shinkansen between Tokyo and Kyoto, I read his classic, The Narrow Road to the Deep North. In Basho's time, travel was very tough. He was always exposed to the elements, at constant risk of physical danger, and fearful of being attacked by bandits. He wore the black robe of a priest, partly because it protected him from being robbed. At the time, it was very unusual to travel for pleasure in the way that Basho did. So as I was reading about this in, uh, in the narrow road to the deep north, as I was reading about Basho's journey, I was sitting in an air-conditioned train, moving at 300 kilometres an hour, eating a bento box I bought at the train station. Uh, here is one of Basho's haiku that he wrote on the road, one of his travelling haiku. Weathered bones on my mind, a wind-pierced body. And here is a short poem that I wrote on the, on the bullet train. Out the window of the Shinkansen, things move so very fast. Did I just imagine the greenhouse on the hill? In the narrow road to the deep north, Basho expressed a desire to die on the road, and eventually he did. So I went from Tokyo, it's a week in Tokyo, then I spent a week in Kyoto. The city of Kyoto is surrounded by hills, and throughout the hills are scattered hundreds of Buddhist temples and Shinto shrines. One day I took a bus partway up one of these hills to visit a small temple called Kompokuji. The temple was originally established during the Heian period, between 794 and 1185, by the Tendai Buddhist sect. At some point it was ruined and it sat unused for many centuries, but it was rebuilt as a Zen temple by a Rinzai priest named Teshu during the 17th century. Basho was friends with Teshu, and when visiting Kyoto would sometimes stay in a small wooden hut behind the temple, which Teshu named Basho-an. In this hut, Basho is said to have written his poem. Even in Kyoto, hearing the cuckoos cry, I long for Kyoto. Yosabuson was a painter and a haiku poet who lived from 1716 to 1783. A hundred years after Basho had stayed at Kompokuji, Busan visited the temple to pay tribute to the master poet, and he was dismayed to find that the hut was in a state of disrepair, and so he set about rebuilding it with some of his followers. In the restored hut, they would have parties and compose renga, and renga are collaborative poems of linked verse, which the haiku kind of derives from. Um, originally, the haiku was the starting verse or one of the three-line verses from the Ranga. So they would have these parties in the hut where they would take their turns to compose these uh, verses. The restored Basho Arn still stands today. It is rustic with small windows and a grass-thatched roof. Nearby stands Busan's grave. Around the temple and hut is a garden of clipped azaleas and Chinese bellflowers. As the hill slopes upwards, the formal garden slowly gives way to the wilds of the forest without clear delineation. People come to Kompokuji from all over Japan and all over the world to pay tribute to Basho and Busan. The work of both masters is read widely in many languages. 
And in some ways, the appeal of the haiku to a non-Japanese audience can seem quite strange. So much is lost in translation. Robert Hass, who has translated hundreds of haiku, describes them as untranslatable. Meter and sound must be sacrificed. Allusions, puns, and the rich associations of the Kigo are all lost on the foreign reader. There's also a rule that Japanese haiku must use a kureji, or cutting word, to mark emphasis, transition, or juxtaposition. There is no English equivalent for these words, so on us the effect is lost. Also, in their choice of the Japanese or Chinese written characters, the haiku poet will make subtle suggestions or double meanings. So by choosing either the Japanese character or a Chinese character or an alternative character. Um, so these kind of complexities are also inaccessible when we read a translated version. But despite these difficulties of translation, the haiku of Basho and other Japanese masters still retain great power when read in English. As a high school English teacher, I've seen how the directness and the concision of the haiku has the power to captivate even the most jaded of teenagers who groan merely at the mention of the word poetry. There's a fantastic book on the history of Renga and haiku called 100 Frogs by Hiroaki Sato. And at the end of the book, Sato collects 100 different translations of Basho's most famous poem. Uh, and they're all very different. I would like to read a handful of them to you tonight um, to give you an idea of the difficulty, subjectivity and joy that must be involved in translating these poems. So the first version is by Robert Aitken. The old pond, a frog jumps in, the sound of the water. The next one is by Kenneth Yasuda. Ancient pond unstirred, into which a frog has plunged, a splash was heard. And often with kind of some of the earlier translations of haiku, they would try and use rhyme or kind of um, English metrical conventions. So they kind of, they, to make them accessible, to make them kind of sound like a Western poem. And that, that one's an example of that. The one by DT Suzuki. The old pond, ah, a frog jumps in, the waters sound. And I think what he's done there is he's used the R to try and replicate the, um, the cutting word from that original poem. One by Allen Ginsberg. The old pond, a frog jumped in, kaplunk. <laughs> so he uses onomatopoeia. And in fact, the original actually uses onomatopoeia as well. So, you know, you might be getting close. R.H. Blythe takes a similar approach. He's, he's reads, the old pond. A frog jumps in, plop. Uh, Peter Balenson gives an interesting version, all in capital letters. Old dark sleepy pool, quick unexpected frog goes plop, water splash. Uh, James Kirkup offers a very simple translation. Pond, frog, plop. <laughs> <laughs> And finally, Robert Anthony Fagan, he, his version goes, Hey, the frog's fallen in the pond. <laughs> Splash. <laughs> so many ponds. So many frogs. Ribbit, ribbit, ribbit. 
As well as giving a translation of the poem, Robert Aitken offers a verse of his own in response. The old pond has no walls. A frog just jumps in. Do you say there is an echo? Uh, at Kompakuji, at the temple, there hangs a portrait of Basho, painted by Busson. And Busson has inscribed the portrait with the following words. Neither speak, neither speak ill of others, nor well of yourself. The moment you open your mouth to speak, the autumn wind stirs and chills your lips. In these words, I hear the spirit of the grave precepts of Zen Buddhism. Now, Busan, as well as being a gifted painter, was a talented haiku poet as well. Of Busan's poems, Robert Hass says, There is a sense in them of the world endlessly coming into being, as if it were brush strokes on white paper. Busan was a great poet of the bell, and therefore can be an inspiration to Zen students who must sound bells in the Doksan line or in the roles of Jikijitsu or Jisha. One of his bell haiku goes, Coolness, the sound of the bell as it leaves the bell. And this is a summer haiku because of the use of the Kigo coolness. In another of his bell poems, we see how Busan was willing to allow, record and celebrate all moments, not just the ideal ones. The sound of a bell struck off centre vanishes in haze. And the Kigo haze gives this poem a spring mood. Finally, there's another poem of Busan's which I couldn't resist reading. Not a bell poem, but another haiku. His Holiness the Abbot is shitting in the withered fields. <laughs> On another day during my, during my trip, I caught the train from Kyoto down to a small city called Uji. Uji is most famous as one of the main settings in the 11th century novel The Tale of Genji by Murasaki Shikabu, which is often described as the world's first novel. Uji is also home to Koshoji Temple, the first temple established by Dogen Zenji. Dogen was the founder of the Soto School of Zen Buddhism, a philosopher and a great poet. Koshoji was originally built in Kyoto in 1233, but was moved to nearby Uji in 1648. To reach Koshoji, you must walk down a long path on the bank of the Uji River. As I went down the path, I looked up to see a monk, high up on a ladder, tending to the maple trees by the side of the path. When I reached the temple, I was given a brochure by a monk at the entrance. It gave a history of the temple and then said, In the present difficult situation of Japanese Buddhism, this temple endeavours to continue to be true to the essence of Dogen's interpretation of Zen Buddhism and to exist as a Buddhist temple rather than a tourist show place. Zen is in decline in Japan and few young people choose to become Zen monastics, leaving many, many temples empty. They're preserved as tourist destinations and as sites of cultural heritage. I was warmly welcomed to walk around the temple. After visiting many temples that felt like museums, it was 
It felt good to be in a place with an atmosphere of serious practice. At one point, I heard the sound of clappers coming from down a hallway, and I had to resist the urge to run and join the Kinhin line. After looking around for a while, there was a monk and I started to chat to him and he told me there were 26 practitioners who currently lived at Kosher G. And he was very happy to hear that in Australia, Zazen is being practiced and Dogen's words are being studied. On the train on the way back to Kyoto, I wrote a short poem in my journal. Between the river and the mountain, the monk trims the tree. Clappers sound, flowers bloom. During the recent spring session, Ross Bolido recited a poem that Dogen quotes in his essay, The Perfection of Great Wisdom. The poem is by Dogen's teacher, Tiantong Rujing, and goes, The whole body is like a mouth hanging in empty space, not questioning the winds from east, west, south, or north, equally all of them, Speaking of Prajna, ding dong a ling ding dong. During session, this poem helped me to find a comfortable Zazen posture. It was a great inspiration to me and seems to have been an inspiration to Dogen as well. On my final day in Japan, I took the suburban train to the town of Hyotanabe. From the station, I walked half an hour up a hill to Shuana, also known as Ikuji. This is the temple where the Zen teacher Ikyu Sojun spent the latter half of his life and where he is now buried. Ikyu lived from 1394 to 1481 and is a beloved figure in Japanese culture. He is known for his compassion, anti-institutionalism, poetic skill and love of pleasure. And being in the temple really gave me a sense of how much ordinary Japanese people do um, love Ikkyu. That people were very happy to be there. All kinds of people were very happy to be there. Um, he invented some kind of um, fermented soybean dish. Um, I can't remember what it was called. No, I'm not sure. Yeah, probably. Um, and that, you know, you could, so they were giving out samples of that to everyone. A very, very kind of joyous atmosphere. And to give a sense of, uh, how loved he is, in the 70s and 80s, there was a very, very popular children's, um, television cartoon show made about him. One of the most popular, uh, children's programs from the time. So beyond the world of Zen, he's, he, he's special, important for them. Ikiji was a very beautiful temple with particularly elegant rock gardens. Mountains of rock and moss sat in oceans of sand and real mountain scenery made a spectacular backdrop. Outside the Hojo, or Abbot's Quarters, five small Zafus were set out onto, on the balcony looking onto the rock garden. And there I sat next to a Japanese schoolboy in his uniform and we both sat there doing Zazen. Um, and behind us in the Hojo was a life-size statue of Ikkyu and supposedly the statue has real hairs taken from his head and from his moustache attached to it. Um, Ikkyu was a, uh, a very original and a, and a fantastic poet and his joyous spirit is captured in his poetry and one of his poems goes, 
Every day, priests minutely examine the Dharma and endlessly chant complicated sutras. Before doing that, though, they should learn how to read the love letters sent by the wind and rain, the snow and moon. Part of the reason that Ikkyu is so beloved by the Japanese people is because of his naughtiness. He's famous for his love of sake and of sex. He also enjoyed other sensual pleasures, as is shown in his poem, A Meal of Fresh Octopus. Lots of arms, just like Canon the goddess. Sacrifice for me, garnished with citron. I revere it so. The taste of the sea, just divine. Sorry, Buddha, this is another precept I cannot keep. <laughs> There's something about octopuses. Basho also wrote a very beautiful poem about octopuses, and his goes, The jars of octopus, brief dreams under the summer moon. Back to Basho. Basho wrote in his travel sketch, The Record of a Travel-Worn Satchel, that all who have achieved real excellence in any art possess one thing in common, that is, a mind to obey nature, to be one with nature throughout the four seasons of the year. And I think that this kind of gets to the essence of haiku. Since the end of the Second World War, haiku have been read and written all over the world, and the form is now well established in English poetry. The English haiku has its own conventions, but retains the same power to shine the light of attention on moments in time and to show the mind as one with nature. Take, for example, this haiku by Philip Whalen, the American beat poet and Zen monk who lived from 1923 to 2002. Early spring, the dog writes on the window with his nose. Uh, or this one by the Western Australian poet John Turner. Bees in the basil. She carries vegetables in a fold of her dress. Haiku has always been associated with Zen in Japan and it continues to be associated with Zen here in the West. We can use the form of haiku to convey the spirit of our Zen practice and I always love receiving submissions of haiku from Sangha members for publication in our journal, The Wobbly Pot. And there's one more um, haiku that I kind of composed on the way here in the car tonight. Um, I don't know if anyone else saw the sunset tonight, but it was striking as I was driving. Hillcrest gives glimpse of red disc sinking sun. Poetry and Zen. Two disciplines, two practices. Two paths I'm taking my first steps down and hope to follow for all of my days. There's one last thing that I would like to do in this talk and that is to offer thanks. Thank you, Basho, for your honesty and clear vision. Thank you, Robert Hass, for your many voices, your craft and your joy. Thank you, Michael Wright, for helping us to properly know the place we live in. Thank you, Robert Aitken, 
for your endless inspiration. Thank you, William Wordsworth, for your spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings, for your sharing of emotions recollected in tranquility. Thank you, Judith Wright, for loving this land. Thank you to all those who I met in my travels. Thank you, Teshu, for giving Basho somewhere to sleep. Thank you, Busan, for your poems that toll as clear as bells. Thank you, Kuroda Momokon and Hiroaki Sato, for sharing your knowledge. Thank you, Kenneth Asuda, DT Suzuki, Alan Ginsberg, R.H. Blythe, Peter Balenson, James Kirkup, and Robert Anthony Fagan for chronicling the catapulting of the frog. Thank you, cherry blossoms. Thank you, wind and rain. Thank you, snow and moon. Thank you, golden wattle. Thank you, lichen, moss and fungus. Thank you, octopuses. Thank you, Dogen, for your shining use of poetry in making clear the way. Thank you to Tiantong Rujing for your vivid metaphor. Thank you, Ikyu, for serving up the taste of truth. Thank you, Philip Whalen, for the freedom and humour in your poetry. Thank you, John Turner, for observing the changes and for posting me handwritten haiku for the wobbly pot. Thank you to all those who I love and all those who love me. Thank you to the Sangha, to every single one of you, for sitting here with me. Thank you, Darcy Thompson, for years ago breaking into an old shed with me and setting it up as a place to study, write and meditate, and then later on coming to the Zen group of WA with me for the first time. Thank you, Mark Edwards, for sitting with Darcy and I in the tea ceremony room at UWA. <laughs> Thank you, Charlotte Guest, for long discussions on poetry and for helping me write this talk. <laughs> Thank you, David Mazza. Thank you. Thank you, Dotsie and Wendy, for helping me to sew my rakasu. Thank you, Mary Ridwin, and thank you, Ross Bolliter, for being our teachers, for sharing the Dharma, and for showing us the way. And thank you all for listening. <laughs> <laughs>